Chapter thirty six of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter thirty six. Believe in God as in the sun, and lo, along thy soul's morn, youth restored shall glow. As rests the earth, so rest, O troubled heart. Rest till the burden of the cloud depart. New Timon. Before they had passed through the dusty village, and gained the road leading in the direction of the mountain-house, they became painfully conscious of the vast difference between the temperature of the river and that of the inland country, and, in being suddenly deprived of the refreshing breeze they had enjoyed on board the boat, they fully realized the extreme heat of the weather. For the first few miles Gertrude's whole attention was required to shield Emily and herself from the rays of a burning sun which shone into the coach full upon their faces, and it was a great relief when they at last reached the steep but smooth and beautifully shaded road which led up the side of the mountain. The atmosphere being perfectly clear, the gradually widening prospect was most beautiful, and Gertrude's delight and rapture were such that the restraint imposed by stage-coach decorum was almost insupportable. When, therefore, the ascent became so laborious that the gentlemen were invited to alight, and relieve the weary horses of a part of their burden, Gertrude gladly accepted Dr. Jeremy's proposal that she should accompany him on a walk of a mile or two. Gertrude was an excellent walker, and she and the still active doctor soon left the coaches far behind them. At a sudden turn in the road they stopped to view the scene below, and, lost in silent admiration, stood enjoying the stillness and beauty of the spot when they were startled by a voice close beside them, saying, "'A fine landscape, certainly.' They looked around, and saw Mr. Phillips seated upon a moss-grown rock, against which Gertrude was at the moment leaning. His attitude was easy and careless, his broad-brimmed straw hat lay on the ground where it had fallen, and his snow-besprinkled but wavy and still beautiful hair was tossed back from his high and expanded forehead. One would have thought, to look at him, leaning so idly, and even boyishly, upon his hand, that he had been sitting there for hours at least, and felt quite at home in the place. He rose to his feet, however, immediately upon being perceived, and joined Dr. Jeremy and Gertrude. "'You have got the start of us, sir,' said the former. "'Yes, I have walked from the village, my practice always when the roads are such that no time can be gained by riding.' As he spoke, he placed in Gertrude's hand, without looking at her, or seeming conscious what he was doing, a bouquet of rich laurel blossoms, which he had probably gathered during his walk. She would have thanked him, but his absent manner was such that it afforded her no opportunity, especially as he went on talking with the doctor, as if she had not been present. All three resumed their walk. Mr. Phillips and Dr. Jeremy conversed in an animated manner, and Gertrude, content to be a listener, soon perceived that she was not the only person to whom the stranger had power to render himself agreeable. Dr. Jeremy engaged him upon a variety of subjects, upon all of which he appeared equally well informed, and Gertrude smiled to see her old friend more than once rub his hands together, according to his well-known manner of expressing boundless satisfaction. Now Gertrude thought their new acquaintance must be a botanist by profession. So versed was he in everything relating to that department of science. Then again, she was equally sure that geology must have been with him an absorbing study so intimate seemed his acquaintance with Mother Earth. And both of these impressions were in turn dispelled, when he talked of the ocean like a sailor, of the counting-room like a merchant, of Paris like a man of fashion and the world. In the meantime she walked beside him, silent but not forgotten or unnoticed. 
for as they approached a rough and steep ascent, he offered his arm, and expressed a fear lest she should become fatigued. She assured him there was no danger of that. Dr. Jeremy declared it was his belief that Gertie could outwalk them both. And thus satisfied, Mr. Phillips resumed the broken thread of their discourse, into which, before long, Gertrude was drawn, almost unawares. Mr. Phillips was a man who knew how to inspire awe, and even fear, when such was his pleasure. The reverse being the case, however, he had equal ability to dispel such sentiments, awaken confidence, and bid character unfold itself at his bidding. He no longer seemed, in Gertrude's eyes, a stranger. He was a mystery, certainly, but not a forbidding one. She longed to know more of him, to learn the history of a life which many an incident of his own narrating proved to have been made up of strange and mingled experience. Especially did her sympathetic nature desire to fathom the cause of that deep-seated melancholy which shadowed and darkened his noble countenance, and made his smile a sorrowful thing. Dr. Jeremy, who in a degree shared her curiosity, asked a few leading questions, in hopes to obtain some clue to his new friend's personal history. But in vain, Mr. Phillips' lips were either sealed on the subject, or opened only to baffle the curiosity of his interrogator. At length the doctor was compelled to give way to a weariness which he could no longer disguise from himself or his companions, much as he disliked to acknowledge the fact, and seating themselves by the roadside, they awaited the arrival of the coach. There had been a short silence, when the doctor, looking at Gertrude, remarked, "'There will be no church for us to-morrow, Gertie.' "'No church?' exclaimed Gertrude, gazing about her with a look of reverence. "'How can you say so?' Mr. Phillips bestowed upon her a smile of interest and inquiry, and said, in a peculiar tone, "'There is no Sunday here, Miss Flint. It doesn't come up so high.' He spoke lightly, too lightly, Gertrude thought, and she replied with some seriousness, and much sweetness, "'I have often rejoiced that the Sabbath had been sent down into the lower earth. The higher we go, the nearer we come, I trust, to the eternal Sabbath.' Mr. Phillips bit his lip, and turned away without replying. There was an expression about his mouth which Gertrude did not exactly like, but she could not find it in her heart to reproach him for the slight sneer which his manner, rather than his look, implied. For as he gazed a moment or two into vacancy, there was in his wild and absent countenance such a look of sorrow, that she could only pity and wonder. The coaches now came up, and as he placed her in her former seat, he resumed his wonted serene and kindly expression and she felt convinced that it was only doing justice to his frank and open face to believe that nothing was hid behind it that would not do honor to the man. An hour more brought them to the mountain-house, and greatly to their joy they were at once shown to some of the most excellent rooms the hotel afforded. As Gertrude stood at the window of the chamber allotted to herself and Emily, and heard the loud murmurs of some of her fellow-travellers, who were denied any tolerable accommodation, she could not but be astonished at Dr. Jeremy's unusual good fortune in being treated with such marked partiality. Emily, being greatly fatigued with the toilsome journey, had supper brought to her own room, and Gertrude partaking of it with her, neither of them sought society that night, but at an early hour betook themselves to rest. The last thing that Gertrude heard, before falling asleep, was the voice of Dr. Jeremy, saying, as he passed their door, "'Take care, Gertie, and be up in time to see the sunrise.' She was not up in time, however, nor was the doctor himself. Neither of them had calculated upon the sun's being such an early riser. And though Gertrude, mindful of the caution, sprung up almost before her eyes were open, a flood of daylight was pouring in at the window, 
and a scene met her gaze which at once put to flight every regret at having overslept herself, since nothing, she thought, could be more solemnly glorious than that which now lay outspread before her. From the surface of the rocky platform upon which the house was built, far out to the distant horizon, nothing was to be seen but a sea of snowy clouds, which wholly overshadowed the lower earth, and hid it from view. Vast, solid, and of the most perfect whiteness, they stretched on every side, forming, as they lay in thick masses, between which not a crevice was discernible, an unbroken curtain, dividing the heavens from the earth. While most of the world, however, was thus shut out from the clear light of morning, the mountain-top was rejoicing in an unusually brilliant and glorious dawn, the beauty of which was greatly enhanced by those very clouds which were obscuring and shadowing the dwellings of men below. A fairy-bark might have floated upon the undulating waves which glistened in the sunshine like new-fallen snow, and which, contrasted with the clear blue sky above, formed a picture of singular grandeur. The foliage of the oaks, the pines, and the maples, which had found root in this lofty region, was rich, clear, and polished, and tame and fearless birds of various note were singing in the branches. Gertrude gave one long look, then hastened to dress herself and go out upon the platform. The house was perfectly still. No one seemed yet to be stirring, and she stood for some time entranced, almost breathless, with awe and admiration. At length she heard footsteps, and, looking up, saw Dr. and Mrs. Jeremy approaching, the former, as usual, full of life, and dragging forward his reluctant, sleepy partner, whose countenance proclaimed how unwillingly she had foregone her morning nap. The doctor rubbed his hands as they joined Gertrude. "'Very fine this, Gertie. A touch beyond anything I had calculated upon.' Gertrude turned upon him her beaming eyes, but did not speak. Satisfied, however, with the expression of her face, which was sufficient, without words, to indicate her appreciation of the scene, the doctor stepped to the edge of the flat rock upon which they stood, placed his hands beneath his coat-tails, and indulged in a soliloquy, made up of short exclamations and interjectional phrases, expressive of his approbation, still further confirmed and emphasized by a quick regular nodding of his head. "'Why, this looks queer, doesn't it?' said Mrs. Jeremy, rubbing her eyes and gazing about her. "'But I dare say it would be just so an hour or two hence. I don't see what the doctor would make me get up so early for.' Then, catching sight of her husband's position, she darted forward, exclaiming, "'Dr. Jerry, for mercy's sake, don't stand so near the edge of that precipice. Why, are you crazy, man? You frighten me to death. You'll fall over and break your neck, as sure as the world.' Finding the doctor deaf to her entreaties, she caught hold of his coat, and tried to drag him backwards, upon which he turned about, inquired what was the matter, and, perceiving her anxiety, considerately retreated a few paces. The next moment, however, he was once more in the same precarious spot. The same scene was re-enacted, and finally, after the poor woman's fears had been excited and relieved half a dozen times in succession, she grew so disturbed, that looking most imploringly at Gertrude, she begged her to get the doctor away from that dangerous place for the poor man was so venturesome he would surely be killed suppose we explore that little path at the right of the house suggested gertrude it looks attractive so it does said mrs jeremy beautiful little shady path come doctor gertie and i are going to walk up here come the doctor looked in the direction in which she pointed ah said he that is the path the man at the office spoke about it leads up to the pine gardens we'll climb up by all means and see what sort of a place it is Gertrude led the way, Mrs. Jeremy followed, and the doctor brought up the rear. 
all walking in single file, for the path was a mere foot-track. The ascent was very steep, and they had not proceeded far before Mrs. Jeremy, panting with heat and fatigue, stopped short, and declared her inability to reach the top. She would not have thought of coming, if she had known what a horrid hard hill she had got to climb. Encouraged and assisted, however, by her husband and Gertrude, she was induced to make a further attempt, and they had gone on some distance, when Gertrude, who happened for a moment to be some steps in advance, heard Mrs. Jeremy give a slight scream. She looked back. The doctor was laughing heartily, but his wife, who was the picture of consternation, was endeavouring to pass him and retrace her steps down the hill, at the same time calling upon her to follow. "'What is the matter?' asked Gertrude. "'Matter!' cried Mrs. Jeremy. "'Why, this hill is covered with rattlesnakes, and here we are all going up to be bitten to death.' "'No such thing, Gertie,' said the doctor, still laughing. "'I only told her there'd been one killed here this summer, and now she's making an excuse for turning back.' "'I don't care,' said the good-natured lady, half laughing herself, in spite of her fears. "'If there's been one, there may be another, and I won't stay here a minute longer. I thought it was a bad enough place before, and now I'm going down faster than I came up.' Finding her determined, the doctor hastened to accompany her, calling to Gertrude as he went, however, assuring her there was no danger, and begging her to keep on and wait for him at the top of the hill, where he would join her after he had left his wife in safety at the hotel. Gertrude, therefore, went on alone. For the first few rods she looked carefully about her, and thought of rattlesnakes, but the path was so well worn that she felt sure it must be often trod, and was probably safe, and the beauty of the place soon engrossed all her attention. After a few moments spent in active climbing, she reached the highest point of ground, and found herself once more on an elevated woody platform, from which she could look forth as before upon the unbroken sea of clouds. She seated herself at the root of an immense pine-tree, removed her bonnet, for she was warm from recent exercise, and, as she inhaled the refreshing mountain breeze, gave herself up to the train of reflection which she had been indulging when disturbed by Dr. and Mrs. Jeremy. She had sat thus but a moment, when a slight rustling noise startled her. She remembered the rattlesnakes, and was springing to her feet, but hearing a low sound, as of someone breathing, turned her eyes in the direction from which it came, and saw, only a few yards from her, the figure of a man stretched upon the ground, apparently asleep. She went towards it with a careful step, and before she could see the face, the large straw hat, the long blanched wavy hair, betrayed the identity of the individual. Mr. Phillips was, or appeared to be, sleeping. His head was pillowed upon his arm, his eyes were closed, and his attitude denoted perfect repose. Gertrude stood still and looked at him. As she did so, his countenance suddenly changed. The peaceful expression gave place to the same unhappy look which had at first excited her sympathy. His lips moved, and in his dreams he spoke, or rather shouted, No, no, no! Each time that he repeated the word, pronouncing it with more vehemence and emphasis. Then, wildly throwing one arm above his head, he let it fall gradually and heavily upon the ground. And, the excitement subsiding from his face, he uttered the simple words, Oh, dear! Much as a grieved and tired child might do, as he leans his head upon his mother's knee. Gertrude was deeply touched. She forgot that he was a stranger. She saw only a sufferer. An insect lit upon his fair, open forehead. She leaned over him, brushed away the greedy creature, and as she did so, one of the many tears that filled her eyes fell upon his cheek. Quietly, then, without motion or warning, he awoke, and looked full in the face of the embarrassed girl, 
who started, and would have hastened away. But leaning on his elbow, he caught her hand and detained her. He gazed at her for a moment without speaking, then said, in a grave voice, "'My child, did you shed that tear for me?' She did not reply, except by her eyes, which were still glistening with the dew of sympathy. "'I believe you did,' said he, "'and from my heart I bless you. But never again weep for a stranger.' You will have woes enough of your own, if you live to be of my age. If I had not had sorrows already, said Gertrude, I should not know how to feel for others. If I had not often wept for myself, I should not weep now for you. But you are happy? Yes. Some find it easy to forget the past. I have not forgotten it. Children's griefs are trifles, and you are still scarce more than a child. I never was a child, said Gertrude. "'Strange girl,' soliloquized her companion. "'Will you sit down and talk with me a few minutes?' Gertrude hesitated. "'Do not refuse. I am an old man, and very harmless. Take a seat here under this tree, and tell me what you think of the prospect.' Gertrude smiled inwardly at the idea of his being such an old man, and calling her a child. But old or young, she had it not in her heart to fear him, or refuse his request. She sat down, and he seated himself beside her but did not speak of the prospect, or of anything, for a moment or two. Then, turning to her abruptly, he said, "'So you never were unhappy in your life?' "'Never!' exclaimed Gertrude. "'Oh, yes, often.' "'But never long?' "'Yes, I can remember whole years when happiness was a thing I had never even dreamed of.' "'But comfort came at last. What do you think of those to whom it never comes?' "'I know enough of sorrow to pity, and wish to help them.' "'What can you do for them?' hope for them, pray for them, said Gertrude, with the voice of feeling. What if they be past hope, beyond the influence of prayer? There are no such, said Gertrude, with decision. Do you see, said Mr. Phillips, this curtain of thick clouds, now overshadowing the world? Even so many a heart is weighed down and overshadowed by thick and impenetrable darkness. But the light shines brightly above the clouds, said Gertrude. Above? Well, that may be. But what avails it to those who see it not? It is sometimes a weary and toilsome road that leads to the mountain-top, but the pilgrim is well repaid for the trouble which brings him above the clouds, replied Gertrude, with enthusiasm. Few ever find the road that leads so high, responded her melancholy companion, and those who do cannot live long in so elevated an atmosphere. They must come down from their height, and again dwell among the common herd, again mingle in the warfare with the mean, the base, and the cruel. Thicker clouds will gather over their heads, and they will be buried in redoubled darkness. But they have seen the glory, they know that the light is ever burning on high, and will have faith to believe it will pierce the gloom at last. See, see, said she, her eyes glowing with the fervor with which she spoke. Even now the heaviest clouds are parting, the sun will soon light up the valley. She pointed, as she spoke, to a wide fissure which was gradually disclosing itself, as the hitherto solid mass of clouds separated on either side, and then turned to the stranger to see if he observed the change. But with the same smile upon his unmoved countenance, he was watching, not the display of nature in the distance, but that close at his side. He was gazing with intense interest upon the young and ardent worshipper of the beautiful and the true, and in studying her features and observing the play of her countenance, he seemed so wholly absorbed that Gertrude, believing he was not listening to her words, but had fallen into one of his absent moods, ceased speaking rather abruptly, and was turning away when he said, 
Go on, happy child. Teach me, if you can, to see the world tinged with the rosy coloring it wears for you. Teach me to love and pity, as you do, that miserable thing called man. I warn you that you have a difficult task, but you seem to be very hopeful. Do you hate the world? asked Gertrude, with straightforward simplicity. Almost, was Mr. Phillips' answer. I did once, said Gertrude, musingly. And will again, perhaps. No, that would be impossible. It has been a good foster-mother to its orphan child, and now I love it dearly. Have they been kind to you? asked he, with eagerness. Have heartless strangers deserved the love you seem to feel for them? Heartless strangers! exclaimed Gertrude, the tears rushing to her eyes. Oh, sir, I wish you could have known my uncle True, and Emily, dear blind Emily. You would think better of the world for their sakes. Tell me about them, said he, in a low, unsteady voice, and looking fixedly down into the precipice which yawned at his feet. There is not much to tell, only that one was old and poor, and the other wholly blind, and yet they made everything rich and bright and beautiful to me, a poor, desolate, injured child. Injured? Then you acknowledge that you had previously met with wrong and injustice. I, exclaimed Gertrude, my earliest recollections are only of want, suffering, and much unkindness. And these friends took pity on you? Yes, one became an earthly father to me, and the other taught me where to find a heavenly one. And ever since then you have been free and light as air, without a wish or care in the world? No, indeed, I did not say so. I do not mean so, said Gertrude. I have had to part from Uncle True, and to give up other dear friends, some for years, and some for ever. I have had many trials, many lonely, solitary hours, and even now am oppressed by more than one subject of anxiety and dread. How, then, so cheerful and happy? asked Mr. Phillips. Gertrude had risen, for she saw Dr. Jeremy approaching, and stood with one hand resting upon a solid mass of stone, under whose protecting shadow she had been seated. She smiled a thoughtful smile at Mr. Phillips' question, and after casting her eyes a moment into the deep valley beneath her, turned them upon him with a look of holy faith, and said, in a low but fervent tone, I see the gulf yawning beneath me, but I lean upon the rock of ages. Gertrude had spoken truly, when she said that more than one anxiety and dread oppressed her, for mingled with a daily increasing fear, lest the time was fast approaching when Emily would be taken from her, she had of late been harassed and grieved by the thought that Willie Sullivan, towards whom her heart yearned with more than a sister's love, was fast forgetting the friend of his childhood, or at least ceasing to regard her with the love and tenderness of former years. It was now some months since she had received a letter from India. The last was short, and written in a haste which Willie apologized for on the score of business cares and duties and Gertrude was compelled unwillingly to admit the chilling presentiment that now that his mother and grandfather were no more, the ties which bound the exile to his native home were sensibly weakened. Nothing would have induced her to hint, even to Emily, a suspicion of neglect on Willie's part. Nothing would have shocked her more than hearing such neglect imputed to him by another. But still, in the depths of her own heart, she sometimes mused with wonder upon his long silence, and the strange diminution of intercourse between herself and him. During several weeks in which she had received no tidings, she had still continued to write as usual, and felt sure that such reminders must have reached him by every mail. What then, but illness or indifference, could excuse his never replying to her faithfully dispatched missives? She often tried to banish from her mind any self-questioning upon a subject so involved in uncertainty. 
but at times a sadness came over her, which could only be dispersed by turning her thoughts upward with that trusting faith and hope, which had so often sustained her drooping spirits. And it was from one of these soaring reveries that she had turned with pitying looks and words to the fellow-sufferer whose moans had escaped him, even in his dreams. Dr. Jeremy's approach was the signal for hearty congratulations and good mornings between himself and Mr. Phillips. The doctor began to converse in his animated manner, spoke with hearty delight of the beauty and peacefulness of that bright Sabbath morning in the mountains, and Mr. Phillips, compelled to exert himself, and conceal, if he could not dispel, the gloom which weighed upon his mind, talked with an ease, and even playfulness, which astonished Gertrude, who walked back to the house, silently wondering at this strange and inconsistent man. She did not see him at breakfast, and at dinner he took a seat at some distance from Dr. Jeremy's party, and merely acknowledged their acquaintance by a graceful salutation to Gertrude as she left the dining-hall. Still later in the day he suddenly made his appearance upon the broad piazza where Emily and Gertrude were seated, one pair of eyes serving, as usual, to paint pictures for the minds of both. There had been a thunder-shower, but as the sun went down, and the storm passed away, a brilliant bow, and its almost equally brilliant reflection, spanned the horizon, seemingly far beneath the height of the mountain-top, and the lights and shadows which were playing upon the valley and its shining river were brilliant and beautiful in the extreme. Gertrude hoped Mr. Phillips would join them. She knew that Emily would be charmed with his rich and varied conversation, and felt an instinct of hope that the sweet tones of the comfort-carrying voice, which so many loved and blessed, would speak to his heart a lesson of peace. But she hoped in vain. He started on seeing them, walked hastily away, and Gertrude soon after espied him, toiling up the same steep path which had attracted them both in the morning. Nor did he make his appearance at the hotel again that night. The Jeremys stayed two days longer at the mountain house. The invigorating air benefited Emily, who appeared stronger than she had done for weeks past, and was able to take many a little stroll in the neighborhood of the house. Gertrude was never weary of the glorious prospect, upon which she gazed with ever-increasing delight, and an excursion which she and the doctor made on foot to the cleft in the heart of the mountain, where a narrow stream leaps a distance of two hundred feet into the valley below, furnished the theme for many a descriptive reverie, of which Emily reaped a part of the enjoyment. They saw no more of their new acquaintance, who had disappeared without their knowledge. Dr. Jeremy inquired of their host concerning them, and learned that he left at an early hour on Monday, and took up a pedestrian course down the mountain. The doctor was surprised and disappointed, for he liked Mr. Phillips exceedingly, and had flattered himself, from some particular inquiries he had made concerning their proposed route, that he had an idea of attaching himself to their party. "'Never mind, Gertie,' said he, in a tone of mock condolence. "'I dare say we shall come across him yet, some time when we least expect it.'" End of chapter 36